Welcome to the Arrive and Thrive podcast. We are your hosts, Tyson Day and Daniel Lenardi. Our podcast is designed to give you fresh perspectives and educational insights to make sure you thrive in every moment. Regularly, we are joined by thought leaders, life learners, and generally amazing humans who bring an approach just like us, casual, relaxed, and curious. How do you engage with recruiters and win over a hiring manager? We sit down with Angela Miller, a career coach and HR recruitment specialist who founded The Talent Mill. In this episode, Anne shares her own career journey while explaining tips and tricks to ensure your application and networking efforts get seen by the hiring manager and the recruiter. She is honest and incredibly insightful, busting myths and sharing valuable industry insights along the way. We hope you enjoy. Arrive and Thrive would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we recorded this podcast and pay our respects to their elders, leaders past, present and emerging. Ange Miller, welcome to the Arrive and Thrive podcast. How are you going today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Dan, how are you going today, mate? Yeah, I'm going well. Thanks, Ange, for coming on the show. No worries at all. Awesome. Ange, can you please share with our listeners what you do and who you are? Sure. Um, I'm a career coach, LinkedIn trainer, and people and culture specialist. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, And I work specifically in the fashion and retail industry. Awesome. And what's your company called? Because I do love the company name. (laughs) The Talent Mill, which is a bit of a play on my surname. I hope you picked up on that. (laughs) I I actually never did. I never did. Shit. Oh my God. That's neither did I. That's bang. There you go. I should probably like make that a bit more obvious, shouldn't I? (laughs) Some people like, I'll see churn out talent. I'm like, yeah, sure. (laughs) I've been following your work for at least a year and a half and I've never picked up on that. I need to make a stronger connection, obviously. Oh, no. I, th- I think we're just a little bit slow here at the Arrival <laughs> Podcast. That's okay. Oh. And so, Ange, how, lo- how long have you been involved in the recruitment space for? Oh, a long time. I suppose indirectly, I was in retail operations for about six years um, and working for a company that had no HR or recruitment function set up. So that was a big part of our role. And then um, in direct recruitment and HR positions, it's been about 10 years now. Yep. So yeah, long time. Yeah, cool. And mm. can, you, can you take us back to how it all began and, and your career journey thus far? Because Dan and I know a little bit and, I, and I'm sure yeah. our listeners would gain a lot from understanding your journey and where you've... Mm where you've gone with your work. Yeah, it's a bit of a story. (laughs) I I loved retail um, right off the bat. Um, I didn't really know from school what I wanted to do professionally, um, but I knew pretty quickly that I didn't want to go into tertiary education and get a big debt um, if I didn't know what I wanted to do with that degree. So I sort of thought, okay, I'll go out and get some professional experience and then maybe it will come to me and I worked um, in New Zealand for an Australian business that um, was expanding so I I sort of joined them when I was 18 Um, loved it I just thought it was the best job in the world the area managers used to drive RAV4s and so I literally had that in my mind that that was what I was going to do and so I they were opening like something like 20 stores in 18 months. So I just put my hand up and they just took me around with them everywhere, all over New Zealand and said, yeah, you can stay in this place for two weeks, recruit the team, 
open the store, get it set up and then move on. Um, so I did that and then became an area manager with them, got that rev for. Um, and <laughs> then by, the, <laughs> yeah, chick. by the time I was 24, I was the national manager for them. So um, I was running 24 stores and I also had a distribution warehouse, loss prevention team and area managers. Um, and then I ended up sort of coming to Sydney every two years, every two weeks rather. Um, and traveling all over New Zealand. Um, and by the time I got to sort of eight years with that business, I had a bit of an epiphany and I thought, okay, this is a little bit of one of those things where if you don't go now, you're never going to get out and you're just going to be there forever, which wasn't the worst thing in the world, but I wanted to know that I could do it somewhere else as well. Um, so I ended up going overseas to Ireland. Um, I have an Irish passport and wanted to be a little bit uh, loyal to the island before I just went and did the London gig. So I went to Ireland. I ended up working at Chanel very randomly. Um, and then I moved to London where I, it was probably that gig at Chanel that got me my recruitment consultant role with quite a prominent agency. Um, and I specialised within retail operations and was working with the biggest luxury names in the world, which was really intimidating as a girl from New Zealand. We didn't even have any of those brands. Um, so I felt really out of place. Um, and I ended up spending five years there and working my way up to managing consultant. Um, before I moved back to Australia, well, to Australia, and um, moved into internal HR and recruitment roles. So I worked with a couple of quite big um, retailers, Bendon and the Paz Group. Um, and then I got a bit bored of working for someone else. So I thought, why not just have a go at starting my own thing? So, yeah, I started my business two years ago, and that sort of led me to this point. Yeah, terrific. I love those mm. stories where you do the the full circle, like you go traveling and then you have that epiphany of going, hang on a second, I want to start my own business. Yeah, <laughs> I think I just, I think most people would relate if they work in HR. Like I, you know, you either love HR or recruitment generally. Um, and, you know, I'm sure HR professionals would hate me saying this, but sometimes HR is the bad news story and recruitment is the good news story. <laughs> and um, but when you work in internal, you report into HR, and most HR professionals don't love recruitment. And for me, I always wanted to be learning and adapting. And I didn't. Once you sort of get to that really senior level talent acquisition recruitment role, there's not really anyone that can teach you anything. You're really just learning the on the job lessons. Um, but I really wanted to be developed, and so I thought well, I would look on Seek. I wouldn't be inspired by any of the jobs I saw there. I'd feel really disheartened. And I just thought, well, I can either make someone else a heap of money or I can just throw my hand in the ring and see if I can make it work myself. So, yeah, that's what I did. Love it. That's awesome. Do you have any, <laughs> if I was a listener now, I'd be thinking, have you got a hot tip for me for mm. how you get promoted so much? <laughs> yeah, you know what? My, my mum's like, what, you, what happens? You just walk into jobs and they just promote you. Um, you know, like I, I really and will go the extra mile. Um, I'm super reflective on 
maybe looking at the people around me and what they do really well. And I tried to just emulate those people in that aspect. Like, you know, so organization um, definitely was not my strong point. Um, so I just thought, okay, how can I, you know, observe people who that does come naturally to and try and round myself out a little bit more. Um, and then I just put my hand up for every single opportunity. You know, I, I, I did sacrifice a lot and maybe, you know, that's not totally necessary. Um, but I certainly, you know, if someone needed, I moved probably four or five times. Um, I went away for a couple of months at a time. If, if someone needed something of me, I was just like, yeah, sure. No problems. I'll do it. So I think it was that real willingness and can do attitude that, um, made me probably be seen as someone who was super reliable. I wasn't always the absolute best at everything, but I was very reliable and they knew they could count on me. Mm. Mm. That's such a good point, Ange, because I think a bit of a theme that's come across with some of our guests who have been promoted quite um, regularly to your, um, same to yourself, it's that notion of showing up, being mm. reliable, consistently mm. providing as much value in that growth mindset that you alluded to around learning mm. constantly. I love it. Yeah, mm, absolutely. I think everyone has always got developmental areas and it's one of the hardest things that we learn, you know, and I was having a conversation about this this morning. Um, you know, we can't ask people to be really open to feedback and open to constructive criticism as leaders. We're not open to it either, you know, so I always just try to just take it on the chin, even if I don't agree with what that person's saying. I just try to look for that perspective of why they, they feel that way. Um, take the lesson and then throw it away and move on. And um, you got the job at Chanel, you know, yeah. <laughs> and obviously you do work in recruitment. Um, yeah. What are your, what are your hot tips for people that are going through the process of um, dealing or working with recruiters in regards to resume, job application, job search, and what do you do in your own sort of life or yeah. have, have you done previously? Yep. Make it as easy as possible for the reader to get the information. Like I always say to people, don't make people go looking for information. Um, tell them, you know, so if you want to move into a different industry, draw the parallels, tell them, tell them that, you know, because otherwise, you know, you do get a lot of irrelevant applications coming through. And if it doesn't kind of look that obvious, it does go in the pile um, or, you know, you, you'll see that. So I was saying to someone this morning, like if education was the most important part of a role or was critical to that role, then I would lead with education. But if it's not, then, you know, I don't really, it's not super important to me where you studied or what you studied. Um, Whereas like if it was your professional experience that's going to be most compelling to me, then you want to lead with that or you want to outline that skill set that they're particularly looking for. So I think it's really important that, you know, you're able to provide a link to your LinkedIn or if you're a creative person and design as part of your work, then I'm, of course I want to see a folio, but I would say 90% of people that apply for design roles never include their links straight away. So already 
you know, if you've got 200 people applying, um, I've got to go looking or I've got to do something first to get that information. Um, and although as one isolated incident, it doesn't seem like a lot of work, um, when you are in agency or in-house and you're working through 200 applications, sometimes it will be the people that have given you all the information you need upfront. That's a really good point, Ange. I feel a lot of clients that we've worked with in the past and conversations we've had with, especially grads entering the workforce is like, mm. you know, do, do I include this? It hasn't said on the application to include it. And, and mm. my advice has always been, if you think it's going to boost your application, include yeah. it. Like absolutely. It's a mm. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and that's the thing is, I guess a lot of what I teach is about maybe making a connection outside of job boards because, you know, they aren't the most effective strategy, particularly in a pandemic when there's a lot of people panic applying and, um, you know, the chances of your application having impact um, is, is not as high. So if you can find that person on LinkedIn and make a connection, then you've got nothing to lose. Go for it. You know? Mm. And I think a lot of the time, if they are going through 200 applications, but someone who's really passionate and has taken the time to, to locate them actually is never seen as pestering, you know? Um, and the worst thing that can happen is that they'll just not reply. Um, and you know, so it's not a big deal. Um, you know, so I think like for me, I always try to teach people exactly that, like what can you do that will make your application stand out? And it is really hard for graduates because there is so many job ads that are like, oh, you need two to five years experience, but it's an entry level position. You know, that's probably the other thing that I would say to everybody is that pretty much everywhere I've worked, we've had a file of ads that have just been the stock standard, get it up, get it visible they don't always edit them to the nth degree. So like if it is an entry level position and you feel like you do match most of the criteria, then just give it a shot. You know what I mean? Whereas like, I feel like a lot of time people get sort of that analysis paralysis because they're like, Oh, I don't match every mm. single criteria. Exactly. Um, but you know, we all know that it's very rare for someone to meet all of that criteria. Mm, it's a great point. It's encouraging. Do you, mm. you, you would obviously get a lot of people um, reaching out to you on LinkedIn. I notice always mm. people in recruitment get a lot of people reaching out to them. What advice mm. do you have for people that do want to network with recruiters? Is there a certain way to go about it? Because I imagine you get a lot of people um, reaching out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the main thing is, 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 you know, you can reach out for a role that someone's actively recruiting. However, I think, you know, much like you wouldn't ask a stranger to buy you a coffee. Um, sometimes it's just like, you know, a little bit of a warm intro is really great. You know, um, a little bit of interaction first is great. And you know, someone I spoke to this morning was telling me about a strategy she executed perfectly that, you know, when she was asking for information, people were more than happy to share it. So she made a list of 14 CV uh, companies rather that she wanted to um, work for. She wanted to completely change her career. She emailed all of them and said, I just would really love to understand what skills 
are um, really critical to work at a company like yours because I'm at a bit of a crossroads and I really just would like to know how I can close that skill gap. So she wasn't asking for anything. She just wanted information, which I think people are really happy to share. Um, so, you know, by, I think she told me she did that on the Friday, by the Sunday, one of them had replied and said, yeah, happy to have a call. Then they said, actually, we have a role that's not even gone to market yet. Do you want to awesome. interview for that? And then a couple of days later, she had the job and they said, in, in two weeks, we want you to go on a work trip to America. And then she said three days later, she had another four emails back from the other companies saying yeah we'd be happy to share information and we have jobs coming up too so it was kind of the perfect strategy that she executed um that you know it goes to show you when you're not asking for something it, it works a lot better you know mm. and uh, same for another people that I've placed into roles with some of my clients there have been people I've spoken to since January this year that we've kept in touch and you know it's been a really nice warm relationship and then when the right role has come up we've thought yep okay i already know of that person i've interacted with them and i guess that's what i think a lot of people when we talk about the hidden jobs market that's mm. what we're referring to it's not like a secret secret vortex you know where you're not allowed <laughs> in unless you do something it's a great point yeah. <laughs> that's what that is you know and it's like people update their linkedin and then they think oh everyone's going to tap me on the shoulder now it's not it, that's not how it works you know so linkedin has an algorithm and it does reward those people that interact meaningfully on its platform and it does work but you've got to be consistent with that action so i think just you know even if you reached out to a recruiter and said you know, appreciate you may not be have any roles right now, but this is the kind of role I would love to be considered for. Um, and I just wanted to get on your radar. You might not get a response, but then if you started sort of connecting with them, responding and commenting on anything they post or liking, then you start to build that connection with them so that you are maybe the first person they think of. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Ty. No. Would you, I'm, I'm really excited. Sorry. <laughs> would, would, you, would you use that language of, I just want to get on your radar? Yeah, absolutely. Again, I it's like addressing the elephant in the room, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Like, I mean, like at the end of the day, recruiters are only, you know, that if they can't succeed without clients and candidates, they're both as important and a smart recruiter knows that. So they have to cultivate both, you know, of, of those. And so they're going to see the uh, value of having that person in their network, you know, and mm. You know, a lot of, so a lot of people don't know that, um, you know, LinkedIn prioritizes people who have over 500 connections. So it's not just that all-star profile isn't there just to be like, oh, you know, pat on the back. There's a reason for it. Um, and so you, the bigger your network, the better. The more you're connecting with people, the more you're commenting, other people are going to see you. Um, and you can, in some ways, refer to what you're looking for in your about section. So if you're already employed, you can do it in maybe a more covert way. If you're not employed, you can be really open about it. Um, and I, I always recommend that because if I can't just jump on your resume or your LinkedIn and see what it is that you want to be contacted about, then I might not take the time to find out. Mm. It's, it's really interesting. I, I'm 
loving what you're bringing to the discussion, even as a career coach, I'm mm. learning, learning a lot from hearing like your firsthand experiences. Mm. And that's actually how I broke into the industry when I graduated was reaching yeah. out to a few people in the area that I wanted to work, which was careers in university and exactly asking that question. Yeah. What skills do I need? What do I need? Like, I don't care. I don't want a job. I just want to know what I have to do yeah. to get one eventually. Yeah. And all three of us would know from this industry, when we talk about those soft skills, like that's an exact representation of that, right? You know, you're displaying that you, you know, you, you're able to reflect on what areas you're not so great at, where can I develop and what's critical and then a willingness to grow in those areas. So already someone's thinking, okay, well, this guy switched on and definitely someone that I would be interested in having a conversation with as opposed to someone saying, Hey, I've just graduated. Give me a job. Mm. Um, it's just such a different approach. Mm. Yeah. I, mm. I just, I love your analogy, Ange, when you were saying about, um, you just don't randomly ask someone for a cup of coffee. Like yeah. <laughs> you, you never go, Hey, can I have a cup of coffee? It's like, how is the coffee? Tell me about the coffee. Like, what did you order? Like <laughs> yeah, so taking exactly. that same kind of analogy is, is perfect. It's mm. just the information gathering, isn't it? It is. And it's, you know, I think that one of the things that I felt really weight of when I was an agency recruiter is, and, and I would say even this year, even though I don't work exclusively in recruitment anymore, but you feel a real pressure, you know, when people kind of load that on your shoulders of like, give me a job or I haven't got a job or I'm, I'm feeling so disheartened. And of course, like I really am happy to be an emotional support to people, but you know, there is a, a kind of cap to what you can take on. And, you know, that's been quite challenging this year as hearing people's, um, you know, stories of struggles. Um, and, and the best thing people can do for themselves is, is maybe switch that mindset of, you know, how can I now be proactive about this? Um, mm. You know, how, how, how can I use this time to, to be come out like, you know, a more well-rounded person or what can I do? Have I reached out to these people rather than just sort of like, oh, no one's hiring, so I'm not even going to look look um you know people are a hundred percent hiring uh you just probably need to be a bit more strategic than you normally would be so like i think within a month this year the whole market flipped on its head and recruitment we talk about a candidate driven market or a client driven market so for a very long time we had a candidate driven market which is we had you know more jobs than candidates so candidates had their choice and then virtually overnight it changed to a client driven market where actually i think it was like five candidates or something crazy to a job um, so the power dynamics like shifted really quickly Mm. it's really interesting you say that because i've noticed over the last month or maybe even three weeks a lot more people in my linkedin network are getting jobs yeah and then a friend of mine who works in recruitment in the city he put something up on um linkedin today or yesterday seeks just brought out something saying september it just flipped on its head mm. yeah um, exactly what you're saying so that's encouraging for for people out there looking for work yeah absolutely i think you know, there's a lot of with seek and that sort of thing. Like sometimes you get flooded with applications and then that can be quite overwhelming for, um, you know, a lot of these 
retail um, businesses might have a relatively entry-level recruiter who's mainly checking that ad response. So I have found, you know, people who with experience might not get the same um, recognition that they would get, uh, say, in another time because someone's just looking through and they're literally looking for the most uh, close match to what the job is so they don't use a lot of lateral thinking they're not like oh but maybe that person would be perfect because of blah 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 they're just like no you don't match so sorry um and so that's why i think a lot of um, businesses are not advertising on the job boards they're more thinking cool we've all got really great talent pools let's go there first and I think there's a lot of goodwill as well for people that have been restructured out of their roles. So I think there's a lot of conscious effort from people to kind of go to that pool first as well. Yeah. What, um, what advice do you have for, you, you mentioned it before about a company or an organisation wants two years experience. Yeah. What um, advice do you have for young people or graduates if they sort of don't have that two to five years experience and there's a role yeah. that wants two or three years experience? What do you tell your clients? I always think about um, trying to read between the lines. Do you know what I mean? So if it refers to an entry-level position, there's a lot of language in there that I can kind of interpret, which I wouldn't expect, you know, a client of mine to necessarily know. But they're going to reference that. Um, I would try and... Um, reference the experience they have been able to build up so far, whether that's through, you know, work experience or internships or, um, you know, even if it was more of a design focused role, I sometimes recommend, you know, why don't you do a bit of a passion project that you could send them? Um, that has gotten so many people jobs that I know that they don't necessarily have the exact experience or category or whatever it is, but they've, you know, kind of taken the initiative to do something that is really tailored to that company. And that's been so impressive to them because they've interpreted their brand really well. Um, so I always recommend that. And, and, and again, lead that on your resume, you know, so whatever experience is most relevant to that business, lead with that. Because, you know, if, if you haven't had an opportunity to develop professional experience in it, but you have done internships, then that's going to be more relevant to this business than your professional experience. So always think about what is going to be most uh, relevant to the reader. Um, and again, I, I always find, remember, it's going to be hiring managers that look at your CV. So, you know, particularly with design candidates, I find they do like real random um, design-led CVs, which is actually not compatible with recruitment software. Mm. Um, so, you know, keep it simple, you know, just, you know, the information really concise and upfront. Amen. I was actually helping a friend of mine last year and she had the best resume and it was a template document, really good looking. I even copied her template and did change my resume to be like that. Yeah. She applied for like 10 jobs, never got any interviews and then changed it to a Word doc and then started just getting interviews left, right and centre. So that's yeah. your that's your advice too. The ATS, you know, automatic mm -hmm. tracking software and recruitment. It's got a yeah. better to yeah. go with a clean Word document. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, the reason being that a lot of them will be able to scan your document and auto-populate into um, the system. So if it can't read it, it comes up blank uh, and someone has to actually go in and physically click on your resume to see the details, which again, we were talking about, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but if you're going through a lot of applications, it can be really frustrating. Um, and, you know, so I definitely recommend keep it really simple. If you're applying through a job board, yes, apply with a word doc um, because it's just so much easier for people um, to be able to access all that information. So, yeah, 100%. Beautiful. That's, that's really good insights, Ange, because something I – it's funny, like I feel my advice is sometimes – you know, depending if you know the person and if you, you know, leveraging your networks and those, therefore you can use that, that more fancier template. But I think you, you hit the 100%. nail on the head. Like if you've got a large volume of applicants, mm. you just want it to be easy. You just want it yes. to be streamlined and know with confidence that your, your information is going into their database. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I also am an advocate as well that if your role kind of lends itself to more of that creative side, then you can create one in, in Illustrator or Canva or whatever it is that you want to do, but save that one for when you can send that directly to someone. Um, so exactly as you said, if you're networking through LinkedIn, send it as an attachment, there's no drama with that whatsoever. Um, so you can have two versions of your resume. Um, and, you know, the folio, if you're a creative, a folio is going to be the thing that people look to as to your um, capability, um, not necessarily your resume. And I'd love to ask you from a, like an industry specific, hmm. I always get a lot of questions of, um, clients who are wanting to break into say like the fashion world. Um, mm. and, and my advice is always, well, I don't know if there's that many opportunities in, in Australia specifically. Well, like what's your take on it and, and how do you, um, you know, jump into an industry like fashion where, there's, where there seems to be so many different areas in which you can go into? Yeah, so that's exactly right. I think you need to drill down on what it is that you want to get into uh, because it is really broad and the fashion industry kind of, you know, there's so many different um, disciplines that sit within there, right? So there's a lot that are creative, but then there's a lot that are analytical or operations led. So you kind of need to know, I suppose, your driver of why you want to get into that industry. Um I would also just say, you know, for a lot of the smaller fashion businesses, they are becoming more digital focused. So, you know, they love someone who understands digital. So learning the tools, you know, um, Monday, uh, Asana, Trello, like all of those things that can kind of give you that edge because you don't necessarily need the fashion experience, unless, of course, if you're a designer or, you know, something that sits within a specific skill set, then yes, you do. Um, but, you know, for a lot of other roles, you can break in by learning some of that skill set that maybe, uh, you know, a traditional large format retailer, they don't utilize a lot of those digital tools. So um, they would have no idea, you know, they generally tend to be quite dinosaurs. They love Excel. They'll never 
never let it go. It's PC all the way. Um, <laughs> you know, so, you know, they do, I think it's like probably be strategic about what kind of business you're trying to get into. And then also understand that, you know, you might not get from A to Z in one go. So with every step, just try to be a bit strategic, maybe, you know, and, and that's a really big one, I think, for fashion design candidates. Sometimes they're like, or graduates in particular, they're thinking, I'm so passionate about fashion. I want to work for a really aspirational brand, but actually what you need is tangible commercial experience. Um, so maybe work somewhere that, you know, you're not like, thinking it's the most amazing product in the world for a year or two just to get into that field and then you can kind of leverage and pivot from there. But it is a bit of a, uh, a longer journey. Would that be like on a target? Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. It could be like, yeah, it's something that you're not, that you, you don't necessarily think is super cool. Um, but I could, you know, those bigger companies as well have amazing um, commerciality. They teach people really well. And there's pros and cons to both, you know, in a smaller fashion business, they're not so process driven. You work across everything. The expectations are pretty high um, and you don't necessarily have a really great structure above you that's going to teach you every element of your role. It's more like kind of chuck you in and where you go, you know? Mm. So whereas like these bigger companies are going to, you'll sit in those roles for a lot longer, but you'll get a more well-rounded um, experience from a training perspective. Mm. Yeah, cool. Mm. Ange, mm. as yeah. you're now a career coach and you've yeah. been, doing, what are you laughing at, Ty? <laughs> I love it. Every time in an episode, <laughs> listeners will know, you always, you always take it up a notch. You, you pause and you go, Ange, Ange, got a question. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe. Let's go. Yep. All right. right. <laughs> Sit up straight. Sit up straight. No, so because you've been working in recruitment mm. and you do a lot around the culture development, and it seems like you've got a keen eye for your own experience in being promoted and mm. developing yourself without formal tertiary education. Mm -hmm. Would you be interested to know what you think of the spaces of career development and culture development and how mm. you see they might blend and where you might see there's any gaps or mm. I think there might be a gap? Yeah, I agree. There's a big gap. Um, and I think, you know, when we were talking about, you know, things like soft skills, emotional intelligence, resilience, um, and I reflected a lot on, on that high school experience for me. I went to a huge school. I never recall having any support with um, subject selection, um, what kind of career path I wanted to follow. And so by the time I kind of had gone through that process, it was almost not too late, but, you know, I, I kind of got to the end of high school and I was like, I didn't actually have enough to get into university because I had just chosen subjects that I thought looked fun. Um, so I, that was like, oh, if I had known that, I might have chosen a bit differently, but I didn't. So then when I moved into um recruitment uh, you know particularly when I was in London I wasn't from uh you know from the UK and wherever you're working everyone has this perception that your experience isn't as valid unless it's been developed there I thought it was a London and New York thing but it's not it's 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 an everywhere thing oh you're oh but you didn't work in Australia so it's not as it's not as impressive um but actually you know it it, it 
they have the same skill set. Um, but they really find it hard to, you know, I find graduates in particular find it hard to kind of get themselves established into those roles. And then on the other side of it, I don't think there's enough really open conversations having being had with clients about their expectations and also how they set people up to succeed. Um, I see a lot of churn in the first 60 days of someone's tenure because of, I think for a multitude of reasons, I think there's a bit of resilience lacking sometimes of just like okay this might take a little while for me to establish myself um and i need to just give it that time like in recruitment we would say it would take three to six months um for someone to get into their role and then start being productive they need to learn their roles so actually from a retail sense we tell businesses you're going to lose six months of productivity every time you bring in a new staff member and that's just the reality no matter how amazing they are and then after that sort of six months to a year they start adding value um, but there's not a lot of innovation happening around onboarding or like upskilling um, new employees so that they meet expectations. And there's a lot of small businesses that, you know, say, yeah, I, I know it's going to take a while, but then after say the one to two month point, they get really sick of that person and they're like, I'm not willing to wait anymore. Um, so it's for me, I think um, it's a bit of a complex one. I think there's a big gap. I think that that's probably what my biggest driver was in becoming a career coach because I can see both sides and I can see that we're so close to meeting in the middle, but they're just missing the mark. And so I was like, well, hopefully if I can work on both sides, at first I was like, is that a conflict? But then I just thought, well, no, because I've always wanted to prepare people really well for interviews. I've always thought, why wouldn't you have the most information that you can? Um, why wouldn't you want to be told what you should wear to an interview, what you should prepare for? You know, I don't think that that's over preparing someone or feeding them the answers. I think it means that you're going to get the most confident and relaxed version of someone in the interview. And why wouldn't we want that? Um, and consequently, I think, you know, we don't train people very well to recruit into their business. They just kind of, I don't know, wing it and then wonder why it falls to shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, very convoluted answer, but yes, I agree. There's a huge gap. Mm, yeah. There's something in that for sure. I think. Mm, mm -hmm, absolutely. And it's, it's frustrating because you're, when you're a career coach or, you know, you're working as a, a removed sort of outsourced, um, people and culture specialists, you, you can see how close they are. But, um, you know, we don't have, you know, investment into leadership skills and we put people into these really important roles and we don't really prepare them for it. And then, you know, we punish them when they invariably, you know, end up stuffing up in some way or not handling a conversation in the best way that they possibly can. Um, and it's no surprise. They don't know how to do that because no one's taught them or allowed them to develop those skills. Love it. Love mm. it, Edge. Love it. You're speaking mm. our language. Something <laughs> we, get, we get really excited about here on the podcast, teaching, <laughs> teaching the right skills and mindsets. Yeah. Um, speaking of mindsets and, and skill development, is there any resources, like any books or anything like that, that you personally would recommend or that you've recommended mm -hmm. to your clients who are in that, that zone of job hunting and you mm. know, gearing up 
for the interview process? I think, you know, probably from, from an interview perspective, I think, you know, for me, the best thing that someone can do is probably follow more like webinars and things like that on, because the, the job searching process is such a fast moving um, industry, right? You know, there's always something new happening. LinkedIn is adding new technology and new updates all the time. So I think like from a job searching perspective, there's that. But I think anything you can do um, to upskill yourself or become more aware of yourself, you know, and aware of your developmental areas, it's, I always find it hugely concerning when someone can't say one thing that they need to develop in. Because I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, you don't know yourself very well. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we at Supre, where I worked, we, we read books. At, I was 18 and I was reading books like um, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Um, I think that's a brilliant book. Um, from a management perspective, I'm still a big advocate for the One Minute Manager books. Um, they're fabulous. They're bite-sized, easy for people to digest. Um, Radical Candor is another great book. I think that was um, from the woman who worked at Google. And I love that because I, I've always believed, you know, people want to know the truth, not, not, they don't want to be just be told what they want to hear, you know? So, and that is a really big one for people to kind of get their head around is that people kind of think telling the truth means like, you know, slapping someone over the head with everything they've done wrong. Um, but it's like, you know, you can do it in a respectful way. So, so yeah, I love some of those um, books. I've got another one coming at the moment, all about, you know, changing culture, which I can't remember the name of right now, but I'll tell you what it is. Um, but yeah, I, I'm really curious to understand um, from a cultural perspective, how you actually make meaningful change because it's a lot harder i think than people realize what do you think is uh, the biggest challenge recruitment industry is facing at the moment oh it's if got absolutely no um no training like i think from an agency perspective oh gosh like I, it really used to drive me crazy um and i when i worked in agency recruitment i just basically took over all the things that I didn't like. I was like, this database is, is ineffective. I'm going to re I'm going to recalibrate it all and do it all again for you. And I said, you need to pay to get it upgraded. And he was like, okay. And I said, cause this is inefficient. And then I started training all the consultants that came in because yeah, I, I don't think people know how to interview um, in a natural way, you know, that they just follow those pathways of conversations and interesting things that people say and, oh, okay, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. Um, instead, it becomes a real checklist of, you know, tell me about your greatest achievement and um, this, that and the other. And then people invariably lead the candidate. They, you know, did you leave that role because you hated your manager? Well, of course, they're going to say, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's why. Um, so it just becomes really ineffective. So I think my biggest bugbear is that there's no training um, really given to people, particularly in agency recruitment, and then they're representing a whole industry and it comes across as really, you know, disingenuous, that they don't really care about people, but they do, but they're also subjected to really ridiculous KPIs. And um, because that whole concept of agency recruitment, they cost their owner so much money before they make them any money. It's this real awful pressure 
you know, high pressure role and they're expected to perform straight away. And they usually don't. And they pick up some really, really crappy practices, um, like not giving candidates feedback and, you know, not respecting the process. Um, so I think it needs, you know, now there's a lot more people like myself that are like, do you know what, like, let's not be from a massive agency. And they have their place, you know, and there are some that do it well. Um, but the ones that actually get to know the client and get to know the candidate and say, like, let's just be more like a connect connection facilitator rather than trying to you know put bums on seats which is kind of what some agencies do mm. um and then also I think as well you know being tenacious with um uh where they're getting their candidates from well, no matter what agent or industry you're in you're going to run out of candidates so you need to think about where are they going to come from if I run out of candidates where am I going to tap into next? And a lot of people don't think laterally in that regard. Love it. Mm. Do you have anything you want to add, Ty? No, I'm just processing it all. And <laughs> I think, um, I think it's, it's been really insightful from, uh, for, from our, hopefully for our listeners who are perhaps going through some of these experiences at the moment of navigating a career change. And I think it's mm. something that's really unique from a career counselor's perspective, because we don't, unless we've worked in recruitment, we don't see the other side of yeah. um, that process. And I know for me, I, I always love sitting down with a recruiter like yourself who brings that fresh perspective and, and those insights that are just invaluable, not only for, for my craft, but also clients and listeners who are, who, sorry, who are navigating that process. Yeah. I mean, it's been really great because I've been the internal hiring manager. I've been the agency recruiter, the internal talent acquisition manager, HR, and then, you know, the, again, that kind of external support. Um, I know what frustrates every single one of them. And it's been nice to be able to bring that holistic kind of experience and say right okay this is where you're going wrong um and it, there are no big secrets and i hate that you know of this whole thing of like you've got to try and tap into this like hidden market or the big secret there, there is no big secret it's just think about the person that's who's on the other side you know and what what their frustrations would be and yeah, and then that's kind of really all there is to it. Um, if you try and put yourself in someone else's shoes, invariably you'll get there a lot quicker. And I've got a feeling Ty and I are going to ask you to come on the podcast again. <laughs> I would love to come on again. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I want to I wanna finish with a topic, mm. um, interviews or yeah. the art of interviewing. Mm. It's, a real, it's a real fascination of mine at the moment. Mm -hmm. I've only interviewed, I reckon, maybe five or six times in my life, which isn't much, okay. someone that works in careers. Yeah. And I think, yeah. yeah, I'm fascinated by the topic and I'd love to know your perspective on, because you, you just alluded to it then, how you've worked mm -hmm. in each sort of part. Mm -hmm. I'd love to know your thoughts on, you know, how to successfully interview. I think the best interviews are where you, um, as, a, as if you're interviewing, you want to be doing the most talking. Um, I've been in some interviews where it's like getting blood out of a stone and it's really, really tough. Um, as an interviewer, I think that 
ex if you're making it like a panel discussion or, you know, a, an apprentice style board meeting, you're never going to get the best out of that person. So, um, you know, I, you know, you kind of have to be prepared as someone going into an interview to just roll with the punches. There might be something you know, two or three people usually really intimidates people. But if it happens, it happens. You've got to just kind of, right, okay, I wasn't expecting that. Okay, great. And also I think it's really okay to, to acknowledge some of the feelings. I'm really nervous. You know, if you say to someone, I'm really nervous, the first thing they're going to want to do from a human nature perspective is reassure you. Um, so it's okay just to say, I'm so sorry. I'm actually really nervous today because I'm super keen on this role. I mean, what company doesn't want to hear that? Um, so yeah, just be yourself. And, and I think um, be honest and transparent. And, you know, sometimes I feel like, you know, when you interview so much, it is quite clear to me when someone's not being honest or not being, I can tell if I'm not getting the full story and I would never push it to the point of being disrespectful, but I might push it a little bit if I wanted a little bit more clarity. So, you know, sometimes it is okay to say that role just wasn't right for me or I, you know, I just wasn't the right fit in that position. So I decided to move on. Gosh, I'd rather hear that than someone make up some, you know, story that's complete garbage. <laughs> like I'm like, eh, that doesn't sound right to me, but you know, so I think, you know, you can be honest and, and also, you know, show your personality. It's so important because at the end of the day, we're going to be spending a lot of time together if we end up working together. So I want to know who you are. I want to know, you know, inject a bit of humor and smile and make eye contact. Like those are all the things that I find make an interview go really well. Um, and, you know, and, and I think that a natural interview just kind of ebbs and flows a little bit like our conversation, you know, it just kind of is like, tell us about yourself or tell me about your experience. And then it kind of all just moves through quite naturally from there. Um, but yeah, I think from an interview, someone who's interviewing, I think, you know, it's a skill that needs to be developed over time. Um, and not everyone is really great at either holding interviews or interviewing. Uh, but yeah, the more you can acknowledge that, like I have so many people that I speak to that I say, I'm so crap at interviews, but it's like a muscle. If the more you practice, the better you're going to get. And the, you know, the more you think about how you're going to frame an experience, the more naturally it's going to come. Great advice, Ange. Great Thanks. advice. <laughs> um, is there a way that our listeners can get in contact with you and, and see your updates and those types of things? Yeah, absolutely. I'm super active on LinkedIn, of course, um, and uh, <laughs> my personal profile, which is Angela Miller or The Talent Mill, um, or my socials across Instagram and, and Facebook, and of course, my website. Um, I'm contactable across any of that, which is thetalentmill.com.au. I think, uh, Dan, we're going to have to get her on for a second episode to go into <laughs> interviews deeper because... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a hot topic that I think we get, we always get as, as career counselors, coaches, recruiters, mm. we always get asked on. And I think it's, uh, mm. it's such a valuable 
uh, learning for people who are going through the job seeking process, but also a bit of a minefield sometimes. So. Oh God, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes, you know, with those interviews, like some people think, oh, I did really badly. Um, but, you know, it's also just a person at the, at the other end, you know, like and absolutely. sometimes they're not very good at interviewing, you know, um, and you know, I try to teach my clients that all the time. I'm like, this whole military operation that you've got going on is, is, is not a 2020 approach anymore. <laughs> you know, I'm like, we don't interrogate people. Um, <laughs> you know, we don't make them feel really uncomfortable. Um, that's, it, it doesn't help anyone. So I try to explain that to everyone, that the more confident and relaxed you can be in an interview, it, the more natural it's going to be. Awesome, Ange. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, really, really appreciate it. And we'll um, look forward to seeing your updates further, I'm sure. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Arrive and Thrive podcast, please let us know by sharing it with a connection and leaving a review. We hope that through this podcast, even more people can design a career and life that they love and are proud of. See you soon. <laughs>